Now, I need to start, I think, by saying, um, some of you noticed last week already that the title for this morning's message is A Pastor's Farewell. And when you were getting pictures taken here on Monday for our church directory, uh, apparently a number of you asked, is Ken resigning? And I'm not. Uh, Some of you will breathe a sigh of relief. Some of you might groan to hear that. But I I called this sermon a pastor's farewell because, and let me tell you, I have heard this text preached on only twice in my life that I'm aware of. And both of them were sermons given by a pastor as a last message to the church that they had served. Uh, The first one, which I heard a recording of some years after the fact, was my father-in-law, preaching his last message to the church that he had served for 27 years. The second time was in 2001, right here, when Walter Goltz preached the sermon from this text um, at the end of his three-year ministry here. And probably half of you were here at that time and may remember him. And the title of his message that day was A Pastor's Farewell. And so that's what I've titled this one also, because this, this passage is the Apostle Paul's farewell address to the leaders of the church in Ephesus, a city in which he had lived for almost three years as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we find him here today after you know, six months or so after having left Ephesus. And he's now gathered the leaders or the elders of the church to speak to them this one last time. And this, by the way, is the only recorded speech in Acts of an apostle addressing Christians. And the speech of Paul's is, I think, both poignant and powerful. Paul is now on his way back to Jerusalem after having been away from Jerusalem for something like five years. And last week, Sunday, we had Paul in the city of Troas with the account of the raising from the dead of Eutychus. And from Troas, he has traveled to Mytilene and Chios and Samos and now to Miletus, which is a town about 30 kilometers from Ephesus. And it's here that we find him this week. Um, It's just a short layover for him on his journey, and he doesn't have time for a real visit to Ephesus, so he arranges to have the elders of the church come to see him, which they do. And they're not expecting a farewell address from Paul, but as he speaks, it becomes clear pretty quickly that this is what he's giving them, a farewell address. And in this address, Paul gives a defense of his ministry, stating clearly that he's got a clean conscience in terms of his service of the gospel in their context. He reminds them both of his integrity and character and also to his faithfulness in his ministry. He lets them know as well that he is very probably heading toward an experience of hostility and persecution in Jerusalem, and that as a consequence of that, he will very likely never see them again. And they're distressed to hear that this is his goodbye. Then Paul again calls them to imitate his character and his faithfulness in their own leadership of the church. Then he expresses to them again the clarity of his own conscience. He commends them to God. He prays with them. And they have a tearful departure. And this address, I think, of Paul's comes as a powerful and sobering reminder of church leadership. And I think it's as powerful an address to church leaders as you'll find anywhere in Scripture. But, at the same time, it is a word to the whole church. Because even though leaders have authority and accountability, the truth is that each one of us has responsibility. And so what Paul calls here in the church, what he calls for in the church, is a call to each one of us and to all of us. Uh, Let's look at the text, starting in verse 17. 
As we've already noted, uh, from Miletus, he, that is Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And they come, and when they came to him, he said to them, and the first thing he says in verses 18 to 21 is a defense of his ministry concerning both the spirit in which he approaches his ministry and his faithfulness to the ministry itself. Look at the second half of verse 18. Paul says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first time I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now look ahead to verse 33. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. And then using the phrase he started with back in verse 18, you yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In other words, I didn't ask anything from anyone, but I supported myself. You know what hardships I endured. You know how I've poured myself into my ministry among you. You know how humble I've been. Now that sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Like he's bragging. See how humble I am? Like my brother used to say, I'm not conceited, but I have every reason to be. Paul, though, is not boasting. He's just stating the facts. He's letting them know that to the best of his own knowledge, he has been pretty intentional about being beyond reproach. As far as he knows, he has conducted himself with integrity. And he is inviting them, just by saying it, he's inviting them to challenge or correct him if he's wrong. And then Paul goes on to defend the ministry itself and his faithfulness to it. Verse 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 26, therefore, I testify to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And this, more than any one thing, was Paul's ministry. To declare, to teach. And what did he teach? Repentance and faith. A conviction of and turning from sin. And turning to the Savior for hope of forgiveness. For three years, Paul preached this. He unpacked the implications of it. He taught all the facets of it. He says, declaring the whole counsel of God, which means that he proclaimed the whole gospel and used the whole scripture to do it. This, said Paul, I did among you. I've been faithful to it. I did what I was called to do, and I did it with integrity. And then he drops this bombshell on them, verse 22. He says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And here he goes. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. These men, some of whom have been Paul's co-laborers for nearly three years, suddenly hear the news that Paul thinks he's never going to see them again. He's going to Jerusalem under the compulsion of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't know what will happen to him there. But knows that the Spirit has reminded him that in every place he's ever gone and will go, he's faced violent opposition and even prison. And he's got pretty strong suspicions that affliction and imprisonment await him in Jerusalem too. And as it turns out, he's right. Um. A pastor's farewell, I was joking this week with Dana, that in the next passage, the one that will come next week, 
Paul is resigned to the fact that he's going to go to Jerusalem knowing that he is going to experience persecution. And I wondered whether I should title next week's message a pastor's resignation, but I decided not to do that. Now, whether Paul's knowledge of what awaited him in Jerusalem, whether it phased him at all or not, I don't know. No one looks forward to suffering. No one looks forward to persecution. But Paul has this underlying conviction of what was true, frankly, for himself and also for all of us, though we usually don't know it. And that is the conviction that to lose one's life in the service of Christ is better than to save one's life and to value one's life above the honor and glory of Christ. Paul put it this way elsewhere, but for me, he said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when he says that, Paul is just reflecting Jesus, who, even as he pleaded with God, his Father, to be saved somehow from the cross, said, but you know what? It's not my will, but your will that needs to be done. I'd rather die than compromise my allegiance to God. Rather die than compromise my allegiance to the gospel of Christ. If I fulfill my calling, or God's calling on my life, I will die content, even if my death is premature and at the hands of my enemies. Paul is really quite marvelous when he says this. But it's increasingly easy to say things like this the more that one becomes enamored with Christ. The more that one is astonished by the grace of God. And he does, Paul, fulfill his calling. Right? He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. A little more than four years later, Paul writes a letter to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. And Paul knows that his own death is imminent. And then he writes, kind of his last words, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And the journey that brought him to that Roman prison started with his arrest in Jerusalem, which is about to happen. And Paul again here asserts his blamelessness regarding his ministry in Ephesus. And get this, this is what he says. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now that is quite a statement. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 outline the qualifications for being elders or overseers in the church. Hebrews chapter 13 says that leaders in the church give an account for their leadership. 1 Peter 5 calls leaders to lead like Jesus. James chapter 3 says, uh, warns us that we who teach will be judged more strictly. But I don't know of any verse more terrifying to pastors and to elders than this verse in Acts 20. That to fail to declare the whole counsel of God is to be guilty of the blood of those whom we teach. This ought to make my knees knock at the very thought of standing here every Sunday and teaching you the counsel of God from the Word of God. It ought to make each one of our elders shudder at our responsibility as elders. But Paul is confident that he had declared the gospel fully and accurately, and therefore he bore no more responsibility for the Ephesian Christians. And may this be true of me too. I mean, I trust that it is. But, just to be sure, we elders are making the, the focus of our ministry in this year to come the intentional and clear teaching of the gospel. 
I've taught it, I think, as we've moved through Acts, but we're going to be even more explicit when we conclude our study of Acts, which is about five sermons from now. But we leaders, and I as your pastor, dare not be guilty of your blood. We dare not bear responsibility after the fact for your knowledge of the gospel and what you do with it. We need to not shrink back from making sure that you know the gospel and its implications. Because I don't want your blood on my hands. And after this stunning statement that Paul makes, he gives the Ephesian elders a prophetic warning in verse 28. He says, Now pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And here's his prophecy. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from, your own, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, he says, be alert. And after warning them with this, Paul commends them to God, reminds them again of his integrity, prays with them, and then departs. Now, as a word from leader to leaders, from apostle to elders, from pastor to pastors, and since it's the only speech of its kind in Acts, you know that this is a pretty significant word about leadership. Though, as I said, it's a word to the whole church as well. What is church leadership? Earlier this year, we asked you to call out from among yourselves elders for this church. What did you call us to? And Paul here talks about what is the essential role of pastors and elders and what matters in a church. And he points to himself as an example. In his speech to these Ephesians, three things I think are highlighted. And in each one of these three things, Paul sets Two things beside each other. Each one is kind of the flip side, two flip sides of a coin. In many sports, like soccer or football, baseball, hockey, whatever, you win your game by paying attention to two things. You've got to score points, and you've got to prevent the other team from scoring points against you. And that's kind of the way that Paul sets up this speech. He's on the offensive. He said, this is what you've got to do. And he's on the defense saying, this is, what you gotta make, this is what you have to make sure doesn't happen, what you have to protect against. I want to look at these three things. This is what pastors and elders are called to. The first essential area of responsibility is that of doctrine, of teaching. Okay, I noted earlier that Paul makes repeated references to his ministry as his primary activity. Just in verses 20 to 27, he uses the word declaring two times, teaching, testifying two times, and proclaiming. You've already heard me say this many times, but this is the pattern that we see repeatedly in the book of Acts, that the ministry of the church was a ministry of the word. It was accompanied by miracles. It was accompanied by a visible, loving unity among the Christians, but it was at its core, as its foundation, a teaching, a proclaiming, a preaching ministry. And Paul understood this, not just as a paradigm for the whole church, but as his own particular calling. Later, he wrote a letter to these Ephesians in which he said this. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And the reason that elders and pastors, leaders, are charged with the doctrine and the teaching of the church is very simple. Doctrine matters. There are things that are true about God and things that are not true. And we don't have the freedom 
to make God in our own image. There are things about Jesus, about what he has done, things about sin, what it means to be saved, things about ourselves, and so on. There are things that are true, and there are things that are not true. There is a content to the gospel. There is truth that needs to be known, truth that needs to be understood. Um, a couple years back, I was having a conversation uh, in my office with a colleague in ministry. And in that conversation, he said that he could not say with any confidence that Jesus was the center of God's work in the world. Jesus, the center of God's activity in drawing people to himself. He said, I'm, I'm just not sure that I can say this. He said, because we all look at scriptures through a lens. We all bring our own ideas to the text. And you know what? He's right in a sense. We do interpret things according to where we come from. We interpret what it looks like to serve the poor. We interpret things like women in leadership, which we talked about not too long ago. But the idea that Christ is at the center I don't know how you can read the New Testament. I don't know how you could read even just the book of Ephesians and think that it's unclear. It is truth that Jesus is at the center of what God is doing in the world. It's undeniable in Scripture. It's truth, and we, me as a pastor, we as elders, all of us as church leadership, we are charged to make sure that you know it and live accordingly. There are things in the scripture that we could say are a little more on the fringe that there is room for disagreement on. The idea that Christ will return and reign for a thousand years on earth. Many believe that. I don't for various reasons. The idea that tongues are an expression of the gifts of the Spirit in our day. Many people don't believe that. I do. But there are some central things that the scripture is absolutely clear on. Things that we would die for. Things like, who is God? What is sin? Who is Jesus? What does it mean that he died for our sin? What's grace? What's faith? Who is the Holy Spirit? I mean, these are the facts that have implications for our lives. These are the truths that we are charged with communicating over and over and over again because doctrine matters. Now the flip side of our being responsible for teaching doctrine, the flip side is that pastors and elders are also then responsible to guard the church from false doctrine. Teach truth, guard from lies. And Paul warns the Ephesians that even, even from among themselves there will arise men who speak twisted things. They will, by turning attention to what is false, they will turn people away from what is true. And this is indeed exactly what happened. Paul, again, writing to Timothy, who is a leader in Ephesus, said this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... You remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then later he says, certain persons have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or understanding the things about which they make confident assertions. It's not unusual to speak with authority on things we don't know anything about. And that can happen with respect to the Bible, even in the church. And two of these men, Paul says, Hymenaeus and Alexander by name, Paul says that they have in fact gone so far as to shipwreck their faith. In its worst form, when somebody holds the Bible in one hand and embraces false doctrine in their heart, it leads to things like the Ku Klux Klan, or the justification for slavery, or in the Middle Ages, the selling of indulgences as if you could pay money to release somebody from purgatory and into heaven. But false doctrine is prevalent today, too. 
And it's all the more insidious, I think, for its subtlety. And its false doctrine is believed by countless Christians. Some years ago, I knew a young man who suffered from a debilitating illness and was in a wheelchair. And he was told by Christians that he just needed to have faith to be healed, that healing was something that could be claimed. So he was prayed for and told to get up from his wheelchair, which he did, and fell to the floor. And he died a couple of years later. And that exercise of being told to rise only to fall back down was damaging to him. And it came to him because Christians didn't understand doctrine. Another example, there's a movement in Christianity, even evangelical Christianity these days, around something that is called the openness of God. And the openness of God suggests that God does not know the future. That God is somehow being courageous and a risk-taking God by letting the future take shape without his direction. And I read a book that was a defense of this theological position. And the writer argues the openness of God from the scripture, by the way. And in writing this book, he gave this example of, of the impact that this position has pastorally. And the example was that of a young woman who had come to him after her life had fallen apart. And this was her story. A few years back, she had met and fallen in love with a godly young man who's a man of faith, passionate about the Lord, passionate about serving in ministry. And they fell in love and wanted to get married. And everyone around them thought that was a great idea. They were made for each other. But they didn't step into marriage lightly even. They prayed about it together. They sought the counsel of their friends, Christians around them. And it just seemed absolutely clear to them that it was God's will that they should get married. That they had a wonderful future serving the Lord together. And within a couple of years, the husband fell apart. Elements of his personality spilled out. There was anger There were sexual issues and addictions. And he ended up walking away from his faith, walking away from his life. And this woman said to her pastor, how can I know the will of God if I couldn't know it in circumstances like that with faith and prayer and counsel from my Christian community? How is it possible ever to know the will of God? And this pastor's answer to her was to put words in the mouth of God and that God would say, you know, you both had a faith that was very real. You both loved me. You both were seeking my will in ministry. You both had gifts and abilities. You both sought the counsel of other people and your future seemed very bright. And so, yes, it would have been right for you to marry each other. But I'm just as hurt by this as you are. That was what this pastor said that God's answer would be. And I read that, I hear that, and I think that that's just a longer way of God saying, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And I wonder what kind of trust that breeds in God. And so the biblical doctrine of God's perfect knowledge and his goodness, that he can be trusted even in the hardest of circumstances, that he knows what's coming, that doctrine is crucial to understand and to cling to if we are to have any hope for the future. And we leaders are here to protect protect congregations from the introduction of this kind of false teaching. My kids um, are all into something called Pokemon these days. And some of you know what that is. Pokemon are little fictional, make-believe creatures um, that have powers. And these creatures fight each other. And each Pokemon has uh, abilities that are unique to itself. 
And when they fight each other, they use their abilities to both attack and to defend. And so my kids play Pokemon fights together in the living room. And some Pokemon attack moves are things like bubble attack or leer, which is just a look that they give. And so they might, the Pokemon might, you know, James will say, bubble attack. And Peter will go, protect. Pastors and elders, when somebody comes in and says, this doctrine, we go, protect. You can't attack us with lies. We will protect the congregation. We will be the gatekeepers. Our job is to know the truth, to know the scripture, and to be able to teach and to protect. Christians, many, believe that God wants us to be healthy and prosperous. And that if we aren't, it's because, because our faith is deficient. Christians believe that there is no hell. Christians believe that we can get into God's good graces and into heaven by our good works. Christians believe that all religions are essentially the same. Christians believe all kinds of things that have implications for our lives but are not biblical. So I need, I think you all need, but I need to know the scriptures. I need to know doctrine because we as leaders are responsible for doctrine in the truth. And so to teach doctrine and to protect from false doctrine is an area of responsibility for pastors and the elders. The other thing that Paul highlights, or a second thing, is that pastors and elders are to shepherd the flock. The word pastor actually means shepherd. And it's a role of both caring and authority, of nurture and responsibility of, as somebody has said, of feeding and leading. Now, shepherd might not be a very meaningful image to us in our day. I don't even know any shepherds. But you can think teacher or coach. You can even think parent. Any role that is a role of authority, but where there is a responsibility that goes with it to care. That's what pastors and elders do. Supposed to give direction, supposed to lead, supposed to say, we're moving this direction, this is vision. This is what we need to be thinking about. That when you're wondering what we're doing all as a church, that you can look to elders and to me to say, this is what's going on. This is why we've made the decisions that we've made. It's leading. But it's also nourishment, it's also care and nurture. That means that we are concerned for your well-being on a whole lot of levels. Your spiritual state internally, how you're doing with God, your physical health, your emotional health, financial crisis. We care. We're supposed to care. Sometimes maybe we don't very well. But that's what leaders do. They lead beside quiet waters, as the psalmist said. In verse 28 of this passage, this is what Paul tells them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And again, as a pastor and as church elders, here is the position that we are in. God has raised us up and entrusted us with you, his people. You, whom God has paid for with his own blood. That's quite a responsibility. God says, they're my people, you take care of them. I paid for them with my own blood, you take care of them. You are responsible for them. 
And someday I will answer for my leadership here, and so will the elders. We will stand before God, and he will say, I gave you people. What did you do? How well did you lead them? How well did you care for them? And someday I will give a farewell address here. Someday. And will I at that time be able to say confidently, I took care of this congregation. This congregation was better for my being here. I need to be able to say that because that is what God has laid on my shoulders. And as leaders, the same. Appointed by God to lead and care for the people whom God has paid for with his own blood, I cannot think of a weightier responsibility than that. The flip side of shepherding the flock The defense to the offense is to guard against wolves. Uh, There's a fable by Aesop Aesop, of a wolf who wanted freedom to move in and out of the flock so that he could eat sheep whenever he wanted to. And his trick, you know this probably, was to dress himself up as a sheep. That's where we get our phrase, sheep in wolves' clothing. Or actually, wolf in sheep's clothing, sorry. There are wolves in the church. There are wolves in the body of Christ. There just are. And if we think that there aren't, we deceive ourselves. We don't have to think very long to look at the church in our country and our continent and know that there are wolves who count themselves among the sheep. And I'm not talking, by the way, just black sheep. Talking wolves. Power seekers in the church. Those who are teaching falsely in order to gain financial reward for themselves. People who are slanderers. People who just come into the church and do damage. There are wolves in the church of Jesus Christ. As an example from the scripture in John's third letter, 3 John, he mentions Diotrephes who loves to be first. Aren't there people in the church who love to be first, who love to be high profile, who love to be in charge? 1 John chapter 2, he speaks of people who went out from us, that is, they identified themselves with the church, identified themselves as Christian leaders, but who preached actually that Jesus is not the Christ. Wolves among the sheep. Christian leaders, even pastors who would say, your sins are just mistakes. You don't need a savior. Jesus is nothing more than a good example. Wolves among the sheep. But leaders hold accountable. Leaders exercise discipline. Leaders protect. Protect you. Jesus, as a The consummate shepherd loved people. He healed. He forgave. He showed grace and dignity to those who were underprivileged. But at the same time, what did he do? He blasted the Pharisees and those religious leaders who would have the people think all they needed to do was work harder. He'd even set aside the word of God as long as you were being religious and keeping the rules. Jesus tore a strip off of them. Jesus cared for people, but he would not let the wolves have their way among the people. Jesus was a shepherd. He was, in a sense, an elder. That's what leaders do. They shepherd, lead, care for, but they protect from those who would hurt people in the church and the church as a whole. The third thing that Paul draws attention to, teach doctrine, protect from false doctrine, lead the church, shepherd the church, protect from the wolves, lead with humility and surrender to God and to the gospel. 
Paul is pretty confident when he talks about this. He goes so far to say to the Corinthians, he calls them to be like Jesus, but he also says, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Jesus. That too is a pretty bold statement, unless it comes from somebody who in humility knows that he is walking and leading as a Christian and with integrity. The prophet Samuel said something like this at the end of his prophetic ministry. Standing before the people of Israel, Samuel said, Here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? In other words, I have never used my position as a prophet for my own gain. Samuel says. And Paul, too, here says, I have conducted myself among you in such a way that you know, you know that I never thought it was about me. I have poured myself into the service of Christ without seeking anything for myself. It's a strong statement, but it's not an inappropriate statement. And it is a statement that every minister of the gospel and every church leader ought to be able to say without blushing. And I sincerely hope that when I leave here, whenever that will be, that I'll be able to say it. That I will be able to say, I hope that my life before you has been worthy of imitation as I have sought to imitate Christ. I need to be able to say that. If I have been the pastor that God calls me to be. And again, it sounds presumptuous. But I'm called precisely to live and lead among you so that I can be a living example of what it means to follow Jesus and to be like him. Contrast that with the wolves who seek, in Paul's words, to draw away disciples after themselves. There are people in ministry, we know them because we see them on TV sometimes, who are fleecing the sheep. They are using a high profile, not all of them, not all of them, but who are using a high profile ministry in order to gain for themselves either success, fame, finances, or all three. And yet Peter says in 1 uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, he says this, Peter, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of, of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Lead and serve with humility, even to the point of pain. Sacrifice, tears, even in Paul's case to say, you know, if I was to die doing this, I would still be better off. It would be gain. That's what leaders are called to. I think it's what all of us are called to, frankly. But it's what leaders are called to because leaders are judged more strictly, called to a higher level of accountability. Lead with humility and never lead from motives of selfish ambition. It would be so easy for me, and in truth, I wrestle with it consciously and regularly, to stand here and know that I am standing before 100 or 150 people, public, most of you looking at me, most of you listening to me, though probably not all, That could stroke my ego. 
And I could be up here preaching and talking with an eye for earning your affirmation, not for being faithful. And I'm not allowed to do that. Elders are not allowed to be elders for the sake of exercising control of the church. Elders are not allowed to be elders for the sake of authority or keeping somebody else in line. Elders are elders because they serve. Elders are elders because with humility and by laying themselves down, they seek the best interest of the congregation. And I, by the way, as a pastor, am also an elder, and that applies just as much to me, if not more so, because I'm the public one. That's how leaders serve. Leaders shepherd the flock. Leaders lead. Leaders care. Leaders are concerned with the well-being of people in the congregation. And part of that concern means protecting from wolves, protecting from those who do damage to individuals and to the church as a whole. Elders are called and pastors are called to speak the truth to the best of our ability with humility guided by the Spirit to open the Scripture and say, what does this say? And then feeding it to the congregation. We are concerned with truth. Not concerned with image, not concerned with what feels good, not concerned with what will grow the church, but giving the word of God to you in such a way that you take it in and it settles into your lives and you live out of that. That's what leaders do. And we protect from false doctrine. We protect from twisted truths. And we don't do that perfectly. We know that. But it is our calling nonetheless. And I love the fact that Paul, standing before the other leaders of the church that he founded and served in for three years, that he could say with confidence and with humility, but with confidence, I have served among you painfully. It has cost me something, but I've done it. I've done it to the best of my ability. I've done it faithfully. I've given you the gospel. I've given you the word of God. I did not ask anything from any of you. And they didn't correct him. And I want to be like that. Now, what does this all have to do with you? Because all of this has been preached into a mirror, as it were. And to you who are elders... But I said at the beginning that this is for everybody. Here's what this means for you. That what elders are in terms of oversight, each one of you is in sort of micro. That is, you pursue the truth. You open the scriptures and say, Holy Spirit, what does this say and what does it mean for me? Help me to know you. Help me to know the gospel. That's what you do. You say, protect me from misunderstanding. Protect me from believing things that are not true. Because you know what? If you're a Christian, the author of the scripture lives within you. You don't need me in terms of teaching. Not ultimately. Here's what else you do. You take care of one another. You nurture. You act as shepherds for one another. Caring for the good of each other. And as opportunity arises for leadership in a ministry, maybe as elder someday, you do it to the best of your ability. And you watch for and you pray that God will keep wolves from among us. And if wolves arise, you lovingly rebuke them. You don't tear them apart. But sometimes it becomes necessary. But we help protect each other. And here's what else you do. In the ministry that God gives us together, in the ministry that God gives to you, you do it humbly. You don't do it so that people will say, wow, that person's committed. What a gift to the church they are. Yeah, thanks. You do it with humility. You do it with sacrifice. Doesn't mean you're here every day for 15 hours. 
You're just faithful to what God gives you and you don't do it for your own sake. That's what it has to do with you. Know the truth. Care for one another. And be humble about it. It's what we all do. It's what I do. It's what elders do. It's what you do. This one time that Paul speaks to a church, this is what he says. And he says it to us. God says it to us this morning too. Let's pray. I guess I'm thankful, first of all, Lord, for your word and our commitment to it here in the church and my commitment to it. I love your word. It is living and active. It does have power. It is the power to save and to transform. It's the power to work the character of Christ in us. And there's parts of it that we don't understand. There's parts of it that just seem gray to us. But we need you to teach us the truth. We need to read it and learn it and study it, but ultimately we are dependent on you to give us understanding. We pray for that. We pray for an ever-increasing spirit of unity. Now, you have bound us together in one body. and we don't, we don't want to ask you to do everything for us, but the truth is we need help loving one another. Help sharing with one another and being open and opening ourselves up to needing help. So we ask for your help in fostering unity and genuine love. And we ask for your ongoing conviction of the pride of our hearts where we have put ourselves back on the throne and are seeking our own glory instead of your glory and instead of the good of the church. Convict us of that. And if, if that's a painful conviction, if we refuse to listen, Lord, would you not let up? Don't let us get away with it. And as you answer these prayers of ours, we really desire to be a healthy, effective, loving church that people look at and say, they're like Jesus. I want to imitate them. All of this, for all of this, we are dependent on your grace and power. But good for us that you are very generous with both of those things. You give them in Christ by your Spirit. And it is in the name of Christ that we ask for these things. Amen. As you go from here, I pray that you will go convicted. I pray that you will go thinking hard about what you've heard this morning. Because as you do, God will do his good work in you. And we will be increasingly the church that God wants us to be. So think hard about it. But at the same time, go in peace. For God goes with you, and you know what? His love endures forever. Amen. You are dismissed.